Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Franz Kampauza, lecturer in medieval history at the University of Amsterdam, to talk about his new book, Scripting Justice in Late Medieval Florence, Legal Practice and Communication in the Low Courts of Utrecht, York, and Paris, out this year, 2022, with Amsterdam University Press. Good morning, Good morning, Franz, and welcome to the program. <laughs> Hi. Good morning. Yeah, that's all of my terrible Dutch I will subject you to, so be, be, be okay. I, I don't mind. It's, uh, it's already uh, a thing that you, uh, you're trying. That's really sweet. A little patronizing, but sweet. I like it. Okay. How are you How are you this morning? You're over at the Uva, yeah? Yeah, I am. Yes, yes. And uh, it's it's a little bit earlier this morning in Amsterdam for us listeners, so we'll be forgive us if we're a little a little slow on the uptake. Um, all right, let's turn to the book. Okay, so you completed your PhD in 2017 at uh, the University of Amsterdam, and so I'm guessing this is based on the work you did there. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is based certainly on the uh, on the work. Uh, um... It has been reworked a few times since, but uh, yeah, it's uh, the, the basis uh, was there in 2017, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So your dissertation. Yeah. 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 Um, so what led you to this topic? Why why law courts? Ah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I um, it's something that I've actually I started working on this uh, during my research masters, which was which started in twenty. 2009 so it's been uh, all in all it's been quite a long project um it was something i just i guess happened to be led to by uh, my then uh, professor guy geldner who um, uh, had just started at the ufa as well at that point uh, and he suggested at some point uh, uh, why don't you have a look at court records so it it really started with court records uh, as a kind of source that is potentially very rich, uh, but also, uh, um, let's say, sufficiently problematic to be very interesting to a, uh, to a historian. Um, um, maybe, maybe it's something that you'd, uh, 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 you'd want to discuss anyway, because it's really, at a, let's say, at the start of this project was the, uh, the, the source, <laughs> as we see often with historians, I guess. Um, you know, that's such a good way to go at a project. A lot of us come in with this great idea we want to explore, and that's wonderful, but then you find yourself, you know, looking for sources to meet that need, as opposed to starting with a source base and letting them tell you what they tell you in writing about that. That's a really smart way to go. But yeah, let's talk about your written source base. Let's talk about these court records. So there's, you said they're really rich. Tell us, first, tell us all the good things about them. What's great about you? <laughs> well, yeah, sure. I think one of, one of the, one of the main, the, the, the great things about them, one is that there are surprisingly many of them uh, starting from a certain point. Yeah? So I always tell my students, um, medievalists always have something to complain about. Um, for most of the Middle Ages, it's a lack of sources, and that at the end of the Middle Ages, it's a, an abundance of sources. Um, I guess this abundance is due in large part to the um, uh, well, appearance or the, the, uh, the coming into use of these kinds of yeah, court records, these, these, these records that courts start producing. So there's, there's a, an advantage of of quantity that is unknown for most of the medieval period. 
Um, and um, as I started to discover when I sort of I started to work with them, there is a fascinating uh, diversity of these sources. I, I'd say in no two places do courts produce exactly the same kinds of court records. Yeah, it's different parts of, of legal procedures that they are noting down and lots of parts that is that are missing. Um, so there's, there's a potential richness that is uh, that is at least for a for a medievalist it's um, yeah it's uh, uh, worthy to have a try at. Um, then of course the, well some disadvantages. Um, uh, yeah, there are real problems with any like well there are real problems with every source. Let's not pretend there's a perfect source. But yeah, there are some real disadvantages to court records as well, right? Yeah, yeah. One is uh, accessibility, so it takes quite a lot of uh, work and 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 uh, and skill to uh, work with court records, and that is something that is true not, let's say, for court records in general, but basically per case that you that you try to study. <laughs> so, um, for example, what I what I encountered in Utrecht. Um, um, took certain skills, and then I started work on the arc, and I had to sort of acquire some new, some new skills. And and uh, talking about skills, that that is both uh, language skills. Uh, some of them are written in 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 in, um, um, in popular languages. Uh, in some cases, you're you're dealing with uh, with Latin, uh, often highly heavily abbreviated Latin, which does make it easier. Um, Plus, there's the the writing, yeah, the, the the handwriting that is that is very different in every case, and and even within a certain case, because of course these were uh, notaries, officials uh, that would be keeping these records for years on end, and that would change sort of uh, um, uh, change personality. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, so let's just for a quick, for a quick second, I also want to remind um, some of our listeners may not be aware of this, but language changed considerably, right? Um, most people who are listening to this are going to be native English speakers. Think about Chaucer as compared to now, and that's not even this old. I mean, so, you know, we're talking about like medieval vernacular languages plus medieval Latin, which is a far cry from Cicero's beautiful language. And then sometimes, you know, a word that's 10 letters long, you have a Q and an M. And you're like, well, grant, right? So, yeah. and, then, and, then they, and then they also use it interchangeably within these records. So there are, for some of these courts, say you see some, some documents are produced in Latin, some in French, some in uh, uh, Middle Dutch. So that's a, uh, it's, it's, well, I presented it as a, as a disadvantage. It is also, you can also see it as an advantage because it does allow you to sort of to, to study an immense richness also language-wise, uh, the kinds of sort of new words that you that you that you encounter in these sources that that is a uh, well if you like to do those kinds these kinds of uh, this kind of work that's great <laughs> yeah that's i mean that is really an optimistic take um and then also of course there's the this they're part of an ongoing discussion about like how court records have a particular point of view 
and you don't know quite what you're getting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's uh, it's it's been a very long discussion. I, I at some point um, um, I note in my in my book one of the sort of the the the, the basic works that may be known to to uh, to broader listeners. Uh, it's um, uh, Emmanuel Leroy Ladurie's uh, Montaigu, a very famous book back when it when it appeared, um, and it took a very positive um, uh, take actually on these records as as potential to hear a lot of voices that we did not hear um, and ever since this this debate has of course been uh, well I, I'd say every now and then raging or, or continuing um, because um, uh, we yeah we should not forget that these sources are in many ways heavily biased or at least heavily um, very complex. It is not as easy to say whose voice are we hearing exactly when we read this or this or this phrase there. Um, and there's an, an evident presence of the the court, the, the court officials who have a certain goal in mind. They want to make a legal case. They want to, to prove a certain point. Um, but then, I mean, they, they, they do get their information from somewhere. It's not like uh, these these people that they get their information from to make their case um, have no voice at all, but it is not an immediate voice. Eh? So you're constantly working with these records, you're constantly sort of negotiating between all these different voices that are potentially there, trying to assess what weight you will have to to attribute to them um, um, when you're when you're reading uh, uh, reading these sources. Yeah. Right. So uh, the other thing, one one of the points you bring up in your book that I really enjoyed and kind of gave me something new to think about is, uh, you know, historians largely work from written records, not exclusively, but largely. And in part, that's what we have. And then there are disciplinary boundaries of like what we tend to treat as text and what is reliable. But um, there's a lot that we miss in that. And you're trying to remedy that here. Um, so talk to me about the, and I'm quoting from you, non-textual forms of communication that comprise the legal process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. It's something that I've, I've, I'm actually, I'm, 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 uh, I'm continuing being being interested in the way in which we as historians can actually also uh, look beyond texts without necessarily at, at taking on the jobs of, of archaeologists, architectural historians, etc. Uh, because a lot of great work is done there uh, uh, within these neighboring disciplines. Uh, and I think it's something that, that historians can really profit from. So, have, for example, what I, um, I noticed um, when I started studying these, um, these, these three courts um, is that, uh, to my mind, a, um, a court is more than just a body of people that are, that are uh, uh, doing justice, so to say. Um, but at least to my interpretation, a court is also a place where you can go. Um, and this is, this is an aspect, for example, that I'd, I'd, uh, I've highlighted in my, in my book, the sort of the, uh, the spatial history of these courts, which is something that is... In, in a few cases, you see it treated. Hey, there's an, uh, an, uh, a literature by architectural historians on it uh, existing, uh, but they have their own sort of their own um, uh, points of interest. Um, but for a lot of these courts, actually, um, I, I had to delve into very sort of 
marginal detailed uh, notes by historians and, and architectural historians to simply um, give an impression of where were these, these sort of these court sessions taking place. Yeah, and then you see that there's, there was an immense diversity. So um, we have um, uh, um, a lot of sort of uh, um, uh, open air activity that is taking place. But for example, in, in the case of, of York yeah, and an ecclesiastical court, uh, most of these court sessions were very probably taking place within the cathedral. Um, and I know... You, you you may have visited a cathedral every now and then. It does do something with your experience of what's going on there. It, it brings something to the to the event that's taking place there. And so that is an example of of a way in which uh, simply uh, considering this these sort of the spatial surroundings of where these courts were taking place, to my mind, already brings something extra about. Um, what taking part in a court case uh, may or will have meant for people uh, at the time. Right? What, what, what it will have brought apart from simply that what we read in the text. So that's, that's a, uh, um, one example of that, that uh, um, let's say, non, non, what I call non-textual. Uh, uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a difference when you walk into the Stadhouse or when you walk into the cathedral, you're like, is you're talking to God then. God is watching these proceedings, right? Um, there's also, uh, you know, these diagrams in your book where I could see um, all the different spaces and I could imagine the rituals of like walking through and being paraded, just we'll get to punishment and like, like we'll get to that in a minute, but just walking through the space in front of all of these people who are going to question you and that you can, that would change the experience as opposed to just walking into someone's office, you know, and, and talking to someone across the table. Yeah. Very, really interesting and a kind of a neat way to think about the, you know, the past. Um, yeah. It's, it's really, it's so really an, uh, and uh, let's say what I, what I, what I've tried in that sense is to um, provide, so to speak, a, a sort of a broader palette of experiences that, that, that go beyond these simple things that we read in the text, or at least integrate these texts that we read within what they will have done or will have meant uh, in a sort of in a in a broader context of of experiences of people that were participating in them, yeah, yeah, brilliant, yeah, I love that. Um, another question: When you're conceiving of these this study, you know, thinking, well, yeah, I'm going to do my dissertation. That'll be a huge hurdle for the between me and my future. What made you think you should do three cities? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was quite a, a, a challenging discussion or, or decision in the end. Um, uh, one reason for that, uh, I mean, there are always several reasons. One main reason for that um, was that um, so the, the let's say the historiography that I'm building on is is already very rich, and uh, uh, some of the aspects that I that I'm that I'm treating are fortunately uh, to an increasing uh, degree also uh, uh, used by other historians. Um, the, the only thing that I noted was that there's there's a tendency to then really focus on on one case study, one region, um, let's say one one bounded um, um, territorially bounded uh, space. 
Um, so for me, it is also an effort to see in which I could, let's say, uh, connect source bases, but also connect historiographies. I've noticed an immense difference between, let's say, the Dutch historiography on, on urban courts, um, the uh, English historiography on, on, on the one hand, uh, ecclesiastical, on the other hand, royal uh, courts, and then what the French, for example, are doing in their historiography uh, with um, uh, something like this, this Parlement de Paris, which is a royal court, uh, really sort of involved in a, well, a sort of a larger state building project. And so I, it, it was an, an attempt to see how this sort of this, this basic model of the courts uh, was to a sense, yeah, how would you call this, um, sort of put in, put in practice in different, in different uh, places, also at different skills of, uh, of organization. Um, that's uh, that, that. That's the main reason that I I thought this this could be a very productive uh, a comparison um, uh, for the book. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, you're right. It is. Um, it's that's and I mean they're, they're three very different systems, three very different governments, three different regions. Like you're, there's there's a lot to compare, and it works really well. I mean, just I want to remember listeners like think back to what we just said about languages. And, and right, there are idiosyncrasies in each document, and you're doing it across three languages. It's, it's very impressive. Four languages. Um, <laughs> four languages. <laughs> yeah, four languages. In the end, yeah. Um, right. In the end. Um, and I love how sometimes it's like this. there's Latin, and then it falls into the vernacular, and, and it's just, it's no language then. It's no, it's just words. Um yeah, I just I, I want to note that that's it's really brave. I don't know if I would have done it for my dissertation, but I'm glad you did. Um, excellent work. Um, and I understand, I, I, and I see why Utrecht, York, and Paris made sense too. These very different courts. Um, and this is an utterly unscholarly question, but what was your favorite place to work? Ooh, good question. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it's hard to say because uh, in, in some way or another, I have, uh, I have very good memories for, for all three parts of this research. Also because I, um, uh, of course, especially for York and Paris, I, I really spent months there as just sort of uh, on, uh, on location uh, working with these, uh, these sources. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's like I have to, to choose between my three favorite, uh, between my three children, which of the three is a favorite one. And that's, uh, <laughs> I might not want to do that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's a good answer. Um, it would, it would be sad if you're like, ah, oh, everywhere, but I hated being in da-da-da. That would be sad. I'm glad yeah. it all worked for you. Maybe, maybe um, one, maybe okay. one thing that I, that I could answer there is that, um, um thinking back thinking back of each of these cases one of the most enjoyable but at the same time of course most challenging things is is starting a new case study that is really something that's that's marking hey you're sort of you're arriving there and you're like okay yeah i did some reconnaissance work beforehand to see whether there would potentially be something to work with but you really start from uh, you want to know something about 
um, the local historiography uh, about the uh, the way in which uh, which historians have treated these uh, these sources. Uh, I saw your yeah, it's uh, it's really like uh, exploring a, a, a small sort of new world every time uh, uh, again, and that's yeah, yeah, that's really enjoyable. <laughs> And a, and a new and a new process in the archive and how you talk and a new coffee place where you're going to go get coffee and who archive worker who's going to help you out the most like it's I can imagine a new adventure every time. So what is happening in courts? Who might find themselves in front of a law court and for what reasons? Uh, many people for many different reasons, and that's that's also something that um, uh, I guess that you that you can see in the book that that uh, apart from all the other sort of kinds of diversities that we've already uh, uh, talked about, um, not every court is receiving the ca- the same kind of kind of people. Uh, so, for example, most of the people that I see in in my Parisian court because it was has sort of an, uh, a court of appeal for most, in most cases, were um, often uh, sort of, yeah, relatively rich, noble um, uh, people who would at some point, hey, who would not have uh, let a lower court's decision sort of uh, stop them from, uh, from achieving justice. Well, of course, in um, uh, in Utrecht, to just to give an ex- another example, uh, we're really seeing the sort of the, the the local struggles taking place. So there's really um, uh, people that just uh, they they broke a window and they now they have to sort of uh, uh, pay a kind of a uh, a, um, a compensation for that. So so there's a um, in that sense you 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 feel the difference of skill in in who you who you see there, but. I'd say potentially, um, certainly at some point, um, everyone would be potentially appear in court, and that's uh, both. Uh, you see both both men and women appear as well. Uh, men, I'd, I'd say, somewhat more often. Um, uh, there's there's some discussion on that as well, um, but you do see both of them uh, appear. Um, in an in an indirect sense, every now and then you might even see uh, children appear. Not not in person, but rather in the sense of, uh, for example, parents that are yeah, that are being reproached for something that their children may have done. So in that sense, yeah, that again, that's the 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 also the attraction of these kinds of sources. There's a potential richness of at least sort of this kind of evidence that 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 people have existed <laughs> even though you 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 know no more than than one line because someone did something wrong uh, you 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 have a, a, a kind of evidence um, of existence of of people there yeah. right and you can see i mean there are things that happen before you get to court i mean you can see right these um the like the broken window what is that about? Did somebody just accidentally break a window, or is this an ongoing feud that they're going to tell you about? <laughs> I think in this case, it, it doesn't directly look like an ongoing feud, but it's more sort of uh, the the, um, uh, the 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 problem with uh, the broken window is that it is, if if I remember correctly, I think also that it is done uh, by night, um, so there's sort of this larger issue of. Uh, disturbing a sort of nightly peace and also disturbing a an urban peace more in general. Uh, so you see, 
um, that in, in, in different ways, uh, the, these seemingly small kinds of misbehavior um, can become very problematic as soon as they touch on something like the, let's say, the peace and quiet that is supposed to rule in this, in this, in this urban community. Now that's a, a theme that I think you see in a lot of these these courts. This this idea of we ha we have to let's say guarantee a certain peace peace and order, um, and that is something that can be broken simply by breaking a uh, um, a window. window. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's a great example of how you. It's not just about what's happening in court, right? You can then you get this much broader view of life in this this place. Um, and so what gets, what is brought to court, um, to these courts in particular, right? Because there are other, there are other courts, there are ecclesiastical courts, there's just the village justice, we won't get into that. Like there's all of these levels. So you can see what, what is, what is going to interest the secular authorities, which is wonderful and fascinating. And then there's this, you speak about, um, the rituals of punishment as well. Right, of how things are handled. So can you tell us um, some examples of these rituals? I'm interested in the forgiveness ritual, yeah, for instance. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's something that, um, um, that, that well, uh, we, we, I, I see it basically in the, in the Utrecht sources, but we have all kinds of similar sort of appearances of it in York, but especially in Paris as well on different levels. So it is... Uh, uh, a much broader phenomenon uh, in 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 French. They have the um, the term amant honorable for it as well. Uh, there's this this uh, um, yeah you might call it a tradition or a broader sort of uh, communication structure where where people are going to have to publicly back a certain forgiveness for for things that they that they have done uh, and the reason that it it struck me was basically that in the utrecht sources it is simply one of the one of the the uh, the most common ways of of treating all kinds of of misbehavior eh? you see constantly see people sort of making up with the town um, rather than with with a specific individual, but making up with the town for things that they that they have done, um, and then it is it is really it is it is uh, dressed up as a well as I, as I say in my book with um, um, all kinds of sort of um, echoes of different. Uh, different traditions of 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 um, um, of penitence of um, uh, saying you're sorry for something that you've done. And so there's this. Let's say there's a um, um, a certain repertoire of acts that is that is being drawn upon to to construe these um, um, the, these uh, these these rituals of forgiveness, um, uh, as they are called. Mm -hmm. And so the but the public the public nature of it is you're demonstrating that you owe something to your community, right? But it also then serves as a warning to others. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I dare say, of course, and that's where the let's say the um yeah, what you might call a communication repertoire kicks in. Um, yeah, so um, these courts, they 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 do they do want to to bring a message, which is a warning. But it's also, I mean, it is it is more than a warning. It is also a sort of um, 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 look what happens when you do something wrong. 
um, we are the ones who are sort of who are um, who are treating these wrongdoings in a proper way. Uh, so uh, don't do anything wrong and trust in us that if something goes wrong, that we will add, that we will make sure to sort of um, to resolve it in a in a satisfactory uh, manner. And to bring such a message, um, what at least to my to my idea, what they are drawing upon is is this sort of this sign language that is uh, includes um, 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 uh, the way the culprit is dressed, for example, uh, uh, um, dressed as in a, in a very penitential way, very simple clothing, uh, often no shoes, nothing on his head, um, to sort of to reference a probably very well-known way of uh, of penitential behavior. Eh? This, it is a sort of a, let's say, a sign language that we know for many different periods, many different uh, places. And so there, by, um, in lack of a sort of, to our mind, an, an explicit message that is exactly saying uh, hey, what, I, what, I just, what I just told you, uh, um, um, they are they are referencing well known tropes uh, of um, 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 yeah how to how to um, um, how to make up for the things that you've done wrong. Uh, what penitence looks like, yeah, but like so, I mean, from where, where, like, where else might we see this sort of behavior? Like, um, you well, as, as soon as you start start sort of. Uh, Looking at it, you see basically everywhere, but a very convincing, a very clear link is, is already made by, um, in a book by uh, Mary Mansfield, uh, the late Mary Mansfield, um, who, who links these, these kinds of performances to um, uh, what she basically sees as the, let's say, the, the episcopal role in urban governments. Uh, she's basically focused on the north of France in a slightly earlier period, but she's talking about exactly the same kind of sign language uh, that was used, uh, first of all, by bishops who knew it from this sort of this penitential tradition and then uh, clearly taken over by secular authorities who were in that sense uh, echoing a well-known uh, penitential um, uh, way of of, um, um, of of organizing these these sort of these um, yeah these penal rituals, uh, so to speak. So, so there you can actually you can you can relatively clearly trace the uh, the, the way in which this this yeah this way of, of working uh, spreads. Um, but but it, but it is something that is. Yeah, I think one of one example that I use from from way back um, is is also, uh, uh, for example, the uh, the way to Canossa, the very famous uh, uh, sort of high medieval event uh, where the emperor was sort of uh, well called or wanted to come before the pope to to say sorry for things he had done. And there again, in the descriptions you have of it, you see the same kind of. Um, uh, dress described the same kind of movement described. So the, uh, the um, for for what must already have been a very well known uh, story of an event in this uh, in in also in the later Middle Ages. Um, uh, it's interesting to see that there, yeah, in, in a sense, there's an abolition of the yeah of of these types of events. Um, 
And so, like, yeah, like the event at Canosa, which is a, the, about the, really a power struggle between secular power and religious power. And you have the secular power um, literally lowered, right? Like on his knees in this very clear sign that then really is going to resign, it was going to be resounding for a window breaker in Utrecht, right? Or for someone who doesn't pay their taxes or whatever it is that is happening. Um, and so, yeah, it's this, it's a series of references then that would be, I'm trying to think of something that modern people would understand just that, you know, but an idiom, a way of speaking that would just make perfect sense to everyone yeah. around there. You, you, I think you have all kinds of, of modern examples of that as well, uh, just something that, that springs to mind. Um, uh, political leaders walking around with a child on their arm, for example, you know, the kind of, um, uh, hey, uh, who's going to believe this? But it's, it's apparently it still seems to work because some of them are still doing it. Um, it's it's uh, yeah it's uh, uh, drawing on these uh, these these ideas of what uh, what um, um, let's say uh, idealized behavior looks like. What is the ideal way of, uh, right. of uh, yeah, and little bits of theater that are easily read, like riding your tractor to Parliament, for instance, on the first day. Um, right, right. This- these are things that are going to make a lot of sense um, to this uh, to an audience, to this contemporary audience. So then reading those, you can like trace back and see what this broader unspoken or like what, what you, you can see patterns of behavior that you're not reading. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then you see them, especially in these Utrecht sources, you see them repeated so often. Hey, it's, it's really, uh, um, I'd, I'd say several times a year you, you would have, if you would be living in Utrecht, you would be seeing this kind of ritual taking place. And so, um, you know, there you, you're always in the, um, um, uh, as a historian, you always have to ask, is, the, is the, the authority simply so sort of stubborn that they keep doing something that no one understands? Or is, are they doing it because they, they do seem to understand what is the kind of language that, that seems to work uh, to get the message across? Um. So, and if you're, you're, you live in Utrecht and you see this happen all the time and you stop, and take part in it, right? So then there's a way that the the whole rest of the community becomes involved. Yeah, yeah. We it's 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 a, um, a part of the uh, let's say of the of the the work that is often the the most complex. It is is um, getting a sense of the the exact audience of these kinds of events. Uh, the the issue is often. I, um, uh, audiences are hardly ever are explicitly named, so a lot of it you have to sort of you have to construe um, um, by reading these these messages that are sent. Are these communications actually meant for a specific a specific audience, or are they? Uh, do they sort of do they do they assume? Do they seem to assume that there's an audience there? Um, if if things like this, eh, like these these these, for example, these forgiveness uh, uh, rituals, are taking place in open air, or uh, to take an example from the your case in the cathedral that was potentially hosting a lot of other activities, and you can at some point you can at least um, uh, speak well. Um, you can take the assumption that that the event will at least have been seen or heard. 
uh, or heard of uh, by people in in the specific locality, um, and uh, sort of assess the way um, the let's say the the power of the crowd, the power of the audience, um, uh, by understanding how uh, these messages, these these uh, ritualized messages. Are, are often uh, very intricately construed to bring certain messages across and often in, in, in multiple ways through multiple media. So things are written down, things are performed, uh, things are performed in certain places to, to sort of profit from um, uh, the, the, the public character of a place or the implications that, uh, that doing something in a church may bring to what you're doing there. Um, yeah, so there the... The, to my mind, the, the audience is 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 clearly present without without these let's say the 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 explicit evidence of hey, this and this and this and this person was there and was looking at this. But I mean, we do know when where where these are happening, and we know there are people there. We know that there is this is you know there this is happening in some of the busiest squares in Venice. It happens right by the Rialto Bridge, right? We we know that people are coming. These by. places are not chosen chosen uh, uh, just because it's a nice bridge or it's a nice play a nice uh, square. No, there. Uh, and they're often also related. For example, you see, you very often see things happening on market days on squares. Well. That's for a reason, <laughs> because people were around to witness. Yeah. Um, so again, there hey, you see that the, even though then hey, these sources do not explicitly say, uh, oh yeah, and these and these people were there, or there were a lot of people, you can assume that uh, on a market day, on a busy square, that there were people witnessing this, and that the authorities will have used this sort of to... Uh, to try and get their message across. Whether they will have succeeded, that's, that's of course, another thing, or in which way they will have succeeded. But, um, yeah. yeah. How this is read is a whole other question. Um, so, and I'm interested, uh, really quickly, like, this has got to be different in Utrecht from Paris, right? Like what's happening in Paris is involving this very different. I'm guessing you don't see a lot of people in the Paris courts who are told to take off their hats and no, walk down no, Market no. Street. Even though uh, in Paris itself that does happen, but then there, um, um, most most cases in Paris are then treated by another sort of another court, not by this sort of royal high appeal court. Um, you do, uh, but in a different sense, uh, have some some evidence for uh, for an audience of these occasions. Yeah, for example, what what is has become very clear um, uh, in the Parisian case is that uh, mo- most of these cases were taking place within the royal palace, which is still in some sense standing there, even though not in the. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's still the the the, the palace of justice currently in uh, in uh, in Paris, um, and um, um, so there they are actually they're much more intricately sort of managing space. Who can be where at what moments? And they have a clear distinction, for example, between sort of secret. Um, meetings uh, well secret is maybe a strong word but at least, at least secluded meetings where let's say the court members would be talking to each other about a case and then the more sort of public pleading events or, or pleading I should say maybe I'm 
always confusing the <laughs> pronunciation of these. Um, um, and um, for this, this second type of event, even though we do not uh, exactly know who would then be sort of standing there listening to uh, um, what was going on, um, we do see, for example, all kinds of officials that are specifically given the um, um, the task of uh, uh, making sure the order in in the courtroom itself is uh, is sort of uh, uh, is managed, making sure uh, no one is is secretly stealing fr- things from other from from, from people attending the uh, the court session. Um, and so there again, you you have in many ways indirect evidence of of a certain crowd being there um, um, present to witness the event, even though it will have been a very different crowd from the one that would have been standing in the Utrecht Square. Um, Right. Okay. Yeah. So this uh, kind of leads to one of the bigger questions about the the role of justice in courts in the medieval in into the early modern period as well, right? So who's standing in, you know, very early on, the idea is to get people to sleep, like seventh century early on, is to get people to stop taking care of this themselves with fam- familial violence, but instead to go to courts. And in this period, we're seeing an expansion, right? And some some historians would argue that this is um, the the centralization of power. You're seeing this in Utrecht, but also then you're seeing it in played out with a different group of people in Paris. Um, where do you stand on this? What do you think? How how is what does your work tell us about this ongoing debate about yeah. the centralization of power? Um, I, I think certainly there's there's um, um, I, I I'm usually a uh, slightly um, how would you call this. Um, um, there's there's a risk. Let me put it like this. There's a, there's always a risk to take a specific uh, centralizing discourse from these authorities themselves as uh, uh, sort of an, 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 a direct reflection of what is actually happening. Uh, there is centralization taking place, but that does not mean that uh, that we are talking about this kind of teleological sort of. Um, 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 uh, development. Um, what we do see is that there are all kinds of authorities that have, for example, state-building projects. But I would say they're, in many ways, certainly in this period, but maybe later on, they're they're uh, in a kind idealized projects. They they want to to centralize. They want to have a sort of an absolute uh, control of everything. What you then see in practice is that, um, of course, the more you try to centralize, the, the, the more difficult it becomes. In many ways, you could say that this Utrecht court, simply by by being concerned with one locality, is in a way much more centralized than the, the complex way in which, for example, the Parlement de Paris has to manage the whole um, uh, expanding realm of the French kings, or the French kings have a certain. Uh, um, so I, I'm by um, trying to to let's say take draw the development of these courts away from simply this sort of this centralizing state building discourse, and by um, let's say putting the focus on these these moments of interaction that we've been talking about, had a way in which. Um, legal authorities are drawing upon certain uh, tropes, certain uh, certain uh, certain communicative repertoire uh, to convince 
an audience to convince people of their role in, uh, let's say, the larger um, uh, theater of things that's going on. Um, without denying that, that of course, some of this, let's say, the centralization will probably have worked uh, because it's also what we see. I also want to to clearly focus on the way in which um, there are so many, let's say, forces pulling other ways. It's not it's not a let's say a run race. Um, uh, not in the late medieval period. I would say uh, um, uh, maybe even up till today you can you can put your your questions at the sort of the unidirectional idea of centralization. I think in many ways there's a decentralization um, actually currently taking place in many in many areas. Um, so it's it's yeah it's. In that sense, um, uh, trying to write a um, let's say a history of, of institutions and 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 and, um, and societies without sort of following this teleological um, uh, discourse that these institutions themselves often present in writing that we've based. Our, uh, <laughs> we base so much of our, our, our idea of history on. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea that um, that these things are done in public, right? Or at least, I mean, if you're talking about the Parlement de Paris and before the people who are invested, right? The fact that the court feels required to demonstrate to people and get, get the populace involved is already a demonstration of this kind of back and forth. But it's an interesting question, certainly, um, you know, and one of those things that we're like ongoing, there's one of these ongoing theological discussions about, the, you know, the narrative of how this progresses, um, which your work speaks to. Um, yeah, so I have taken up a ton of your time already, and so I'm gonna please we'll, we'll chat. It was like one, just one more question, which is, what's next? What are you working on now? Um, what I'm working on now, I, I um, se- several uh, smaller projects because what I noticed after having finished the book, where I'm really uh, working in certain broad stroke, broad lines. I, I had an, uh, an immense desire to get back to these sources again because a lot of the sort of the real sort of source um, work that I've done for, for this book is already, uh, well, it was years ago that I really got to sort of dive into these sources. So that's something um, that I had, had a great desire for. And one of the, um, the subjects that I'm currently working on together with a, with a colleague here in Amsterdam is this this curious phenomenon of the stone fine that you may have seen in uh, in Utrecht, uh, which is basically um, people are fined, but they are fined in numbers of stones, um, which yeah, which is odd. Really odd. In, in practice, it probably didn't mean that they 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 themselves had to carry these stones uh, to the, the the court. In some cases, maybe, but in most cases, not. Um, but they did have to sort of. They did have to finance a certain number of stones that could then be used for constructing works, and that's a phenomenon that already struck me uh, during my research. I, I, I looked into it a little bit, but it's um, it's much more widespread and much less uh, looked into than than I had imagined for a curious phenomenon like that. So that's something that me and and a colleague of me are currently, for example, working on. Uh, 
little uh, archival reset yeah, to get you. Yeah, really, uh, simply from the desire to do to dive into these archives some more uh, after uh, after finishing the book. <laughs> but that's just one sort of one thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I understand, and I promise uh, any historian who's listening understands too. Like we just the archive you got to get back there all right thank you so much franz it's been a wonderful conversation yeah, thank you for the and i look forward to- <laughs> wonderful i really look forward to reading about the stone find all right take care okay bye